You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's good to want a more intimate relationship. And Christians need to figure out that we actually have a very high view of the body as God's creation. There's no other religion or philosophy that has such a high view of nature and the human body. And so you might find biology trumping your intentions. Being human is no longer enough for human rights. You cannot separate your body from the person, no matter how hard you try. Dear young married couple, you're in a busy season of your life. You're probably working and involved in ministry. On top of that, you might even be parents or students. You're maxed, but you really want to stay connected in your marriage. And that's why we're bringing this podcast to you. I'm Adam King. And I'm Carissa King. And we work with busy couples just like you in our counseling office here in Sacramento, California. We also work with couples all over the world through online counseling. And our couples are really just looking for ways to communicate with each other more effectively. Some of them are looking to heal from a breach in trust or find direction in fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. So come and join us as we have a conversation. We'll talk with therapists, authors, pastors, and other couples who will pour into us, giving us tools to become more intimately connected, get adventurous, and find purpose. So welcome, Nancy, to the podcast. We're so honored to have you on today. You're welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So just to start off this conversation, um, we recently saw your book, Love Thy Body, and we're intrigued instantly with it uh, just because we know your work. And this is such a subject that needs, I think, needs to be talked about and covered in Christian circles. But I think from the outset, I think a lot of people... Um, just looking at love thy body that that is a, a little bit of provocative title yeah you know could you talk talk a little bit about what's in the book and what its you know aim is right so in love thy body i address sort of the cutting edge moral issues of our day like abortion euthanasia uh, the, hookup, the hookup culture and homosexuality transgenderism and what is unique about the book is that I show that uh, all of these issues in terms of the secular treatment of these issues all deal with the, uh, an underlying worldview. And that underlying worldview is a denigration of the body. It's a devaluation of the body. And Christians need to figure out that we actually have a very high view of the body as yes. God's creation. as something that God made and therefore it has intrinsic purpose and dignity. We need to learn positive language to express the biblical ethic and show that it's actually based on a very high view of the body. That is a hard 
a lesson for Christians to learn. I have discovered since writing the book, yeah. I have discovered that it's very common in Christian circles for the main message to be negative, to be it's it's wrong, it's a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Instead of our message being God created you, you have great value and dignity, and God's the the biblical ethic that God has given us is to help with your help you be happier and healthier. Mm-hmm. So that positive message is what's in, sort of um, summarized in the title, Love Thy Body. Mm-hmm. Oh, so That's beautiful. Good. Yeah. You mentioned, um, you know, the ethics. And in the book, you, you say that ultimately it's your view of science or nature that drives your ethics. Can you talk a little bit about the connection there between your ethics and then your view of science and nature? Right. Uh, it turns out that most ethics is based on your view of nature because, after all, your body is part of nature. Mm-hmm. Right. So how you treat your body reflects how you view nature. So the secular view starts with the assumption that our bodies are products of blind, material, purposeless forces, and therefore your body has no intrinsic purpose mm. or, or dignity. Uh, why don't we just jump in? Sometimes it's easier to see that with an example. Okay. So mm-hmm. let's use abortion as an example. Okay. Most professional bioethicists today agree that life begins at conception. Mm. A lot of ordinary people don't realize that yet, but at the professional level, bioethicists say that life begins at conception because after all the evidence from science, from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so what do they how do they get around that then and support abortion? Mm-hmm. What they say is at so, at an uh, early stage the fetus is just human. Mm-hmm. It's you know they, they acknowledge it's human obviously it's not some alien species. <laughs> the mm-hmm. fetus is human but it's not a person yet. It doesn't mm-hmm. become a person until it acquires a certain level of cognitive functioning, mental abilities, self-awareness, and so on. Mm. So notice that they're essentially holding a divided view right. of, of what it means to be a human being. They're the body be, and personhood. Right. Mm. Exactly. At first, you're just a body. And at that level, they're, they're willing to acknowledge it biologically, physiologically, genetically, the fetus is human. We know, and insofar as we can know it scientifically, it is human, but it's not a person until sometime later. And the person who, personhood it consists of the mental functions. And so in Lovely Body, uh, I use the metaphor of two stories in a building. Mm. So in the lower, it helps people kind of get a yes. picture of this, mm. of, the, of the body versus the person. Okay. It's a dichotomy or dualism. So in the lower story, is what we know scientifically, and that is you are human. And the but the fetus does not acquire moral status and is not uh, does not warrant legal protection mm-hmm. until it jumps into the upper story and becomes a person, which is all, which is defined in terms of the mind, mental mm-hmm. abilities. So you're right, Carissa, when you said it's the body versus the mind or the personhood, and it's a radically dualistic view of what it means to be a human being. Yeah. And, notice, and notice, too, how it denigrates the body. As long yes. as you are in the early stage where you are acknowledged to be human, but just a body, 
you have no rights at all. You can be killed for any reason. Or There's no, no reason. value. There's, There's no, no value. value. And exactly. yet the hypocrisy in that is when when you shift that line of reasoning into, you know, modern science is they want to they want to place a lot of value on that bottom story, that lower story. But then the opinions and spirit and personal stuff in that that upper story don't val- aren't valued as much. So um, I heard just to tag on what you're saying, I've heard you talk about that um, kind of from I think you said based off of Francis Schaeffer's work where he's talking about like, that's how this secularist uh, lives their life where they see uh, the bottom story, the empirical facts, Mm -hmm. you know, the way they see life is all that, um, you know, the truth is derived from that, that baser, that lower story, Mm -hmm. which where we have science and everything else. And then on the higher story, we have kind of, um, where we derive our personal subjective framework of how we see the life, like right. our, our um, worldview, but it's very subjective in nature. Exactly. And uh, that's why in, the, in my book, Love Thy Body, I do start with Francis Schaeffer. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. He's the first person who really sort of popularized in the evangelical world the notion that for secular thinkers, truth has been split. It's been divided. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to me, I, mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but I became a Christian at Francis Schaeffer's ministry in Switzerland. Oh, so cool. Uh, didn't know that. Well, you didn't? Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I wasn't paying attention enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, a lot of people know that that's why I re- reference Schaeffer so much is because he himself and his thinking uh, is what, uh, inspired me to become a Christian. I went to uh, Libri- I went to Libri as an agnostic, okay. and as a complete relativist and skeptic. And, um, and Schaefer's ap- apologetics approach was the only one that I think would have worked with me. I don't know, I don't know that any other one would have, because he being in Europe, he was more attuned to the postmodern mindset mm. than Americans were, and I was very I was already extremely postmodern. Yeah, <laughs> my thinking. And for for example, um, a more factual approach, like, well, let's look at the facts uh, that support Jesus' resurrection, uh, for example. I was like, uh, in, fact, in fact, I should say, um, I had an I had an older brother who had be, who had become a Christian, and he was trying to push me into considering the case for Christianity uh, from the, from the historical factual perspective. Habermas mm-hmm. and his five facts. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly, and. He said, okay, he, he was getting frustrated. I was being a little evasive because I hadn't really told my family that I no longer believed. I had given up my Christianity at a very, in a very intentional, conscious way when I was about halfway through high school mm. because I had started asking questions and I couldn't get anyone right. to give me any answers. Mm-hmm. And I finally decided if you don't have good reasons for believing something, you shouldn't say you believe it, whether it's Christianity or anything else. Amen. So I... <laughs> <laughs> I very intentionally gave up, you know, turned my back on my Christian upbringing and started searching for truth. Um, so I, I had I had already lived as an agnostic for several years when I went to Libri. And, uh, oh, yes, yeah, so I started talking about my brother who had become a Christian. And he was frustrated. And he finally just said, okay, let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus rose from the dead? And um, 
a friend who was with us said, well, that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, it's not. That could be a one. That could be a wonderful parable that gives some people's me- you know meaning to their lives. Mm-hmm. But you know, you, truth doesn't come even, doesn't even come into it. You know, who cares? Mm-hmm. Who cares? Cares what's true? Let's just look at what you know the, the stories that give meaning to your life. So that's where I was already in the early. Wow, 19th. very postmodern thinking. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And so that's why Schaefer, when he said, okay, you're in the upper story. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. I get this. That makes sense. <laughs> ah, there you go. It's so, I think it's very helpful for Christians that want to engage the secular culture uh, to have that in mind that people are seeing it through that lens, not just like, this is true, so you should believe it. It's like, no, that's true for you. Yeah. Please don't push it onto me. <laughs> Exactly. And when I give my lecture on my book, Total Truth, which is all about this, um, that's one of the illustrations I use. If somebody says to you, that could be, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. That's your clue that they're speaking from the upper story. Yes. <laughs> that they're, they're thinking from the upper story where there's no, truth no longer really even applies. It's just what makes mm-hmm. sense. What gives you, what, what helps you through the night? <laughs> Relativism at its finest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So kind of kind of rewinding back to this divide that we see in the example of abortion, um, where, you know, there's the the body, the the biological piece at that lower level. And then at the upper level, you have the um, the personhood. Right. The um, what what gives your your life value. It's it's kind of a hip, hypocritical way of looking at it. Right. I, I I don't know if I would use the word hypocritical, but okay. it is. But it is. Uh, you, but you are right when you try and you point trying to point out the inner contradiction. There, there you go. Yes, it's definitely an inner contradiction, and that's one of the things we need to understand about the modern mindset is that it is torn apart into these two conflicting upper lower stories. To use mm-hmm. that to use that metaphor, and it it is also the uh, driving force be- behind secular bioethics when it comes to euthanasia. Euthanasia is just the same reasoning in reverse. <laughs> it, it says if you learn, if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, if you lo- lose your self-awareness, um, then you're no longer a person, oh, you even though you are obviously still human. Mm. <laughs> so in euthanasia, one bioethicist I read put it this way, uh, with the loss of whatever the whatever the key cognitive functions are, um, it, you're only a body. That was his phrase. It is only a body. And when it's only a body, it can be, uh, treatment can be withheld. Your food and water can be discontinued. Your organs can be transplanted. So you are no longer, you no longer have the value and dignity of a full person. I like the way you use that word. This is actually called personhood theory. And it's the idea that, well, the implication is that, and so whether we're talking about the fetus or we're talking about a, dis, a, a disabled person or an elderly person, being human no longer qualifies you for human rights. And I think that's the the lesson from all this for the, you know for all of us is, you know, ever since Roe v. Wade, nineteen seventy three, technically you no longer have human rights just because you're human, just because you're a member of the human race. Now that hasn't totally filtered down yet into everyone's thinking, but the logic is already there in that Supreme Court decision. 
<sighs> wow. Man, uh, just brings to mind the, the idea or the, the statement that ideas have consequences. Mm-hmm. And just since we're talking about Francis Schaeffer, um, just as you're talking about this and that came to mind, his book, How Then Should We Live? That's, you know, ideas have consequences and this is just the result. What we're living with right now is the result of this thinking that's not grounded with in any objective morality. Mm-hmm. It's subjective in nature. And now, okay, you're going to lose your personhood just because you may, you know, you may not be as smart as you once were, or maybe you got, you know, something happened. You, you're in exactly. jeopardy of maybe and, losing and your personhood. How could that be, you know? Who, who uh, actually helped me become pro-life. I had become a Christian, but I had not become pro-life. Uh, to my trip to Libri, mm. and it was later when he went around the country with his "How mm. should How should we then live?" Um, presentation. You remember, he had videos and lectures and so on, and he went around the country giving this presentation. And uh, I, I already was married uh. and had my first child before I was convinced, you know, by Francis Schaeffer again. So he he did have quite an impact on my life. Wow. And, and what, <laughs> but what he. Um, yeah. He didn't quite take it this far, though. In other words, I mean, it, those of us who have been shaped by his thinking, uh, this is what I teach in my class. I have a class on on Lewis and Schaefer. And my whole point is we're not just yeah. going to do history. Like, what did they say? Okay. What did oh. they think? What did they teach? I say, we're going to show, talk about how to drive it further. How can we further develop their ideas? So I took that upper lower story divide, which Schaefer applied only to the concept of truth. Um, And I discovered that it was extremely Mm -hmm. helpful for a whole host of other issues, starting with, like we just said, with abortion and euthanasia, the body versus the person. Um, And and, and as we get into uh, further, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you um, want to talk about things like homosexuality and transgenderism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even concepts like hookup culture. I mean, that's a big one in in our world today, and even in Christian circles, it's it's huge. Yeah. Um, and actually, a question we had for you relates to hookup culture, because um, in the book you quote a college student. Uh, her name was Alicia, and she says, "You know, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable." So our question for you, from a theological perspective, what's the danger of engaging in this type of behavior? Mm. And I mean, it, I think it relates exactly. well to transgenderism um, and homosexuality as well. Essentially, what I found, um, if, if you keep that upper lower story um, metaphor in mind, essentially what the hookup culture does is say it's only your body that matters. You only connect to another person through, through sex, which is physically through your body. And I, I found lots of very poignant quotes from college mm-hmm. students. Uh, the, the one by Alicia is, is perhaps my favorite one because it's so clear, but there were some others as well. Mm-hmm. Like one girl who said, um, "Body with us right now, it's body first, personality second. And she said, you know, I, we're, we're treating one another as though we're basically bodies mm-hmm. and we suppress our emotions. And I have to tell you this. Um, I found a fascinating book after I wrote Love Thy Body. What the the researcher was writing on uh, against the notion of legalizing prostitution. 
And she went out and actually interviewed prostitutes. And to my amazement, she found the same body person dualism. <sighs> when they would describe how they, how they survived in an obviously very abusive environment, mm -hmm. again and again, they said, I did it by separating my body from my mind. And let me give you a, a few quotes from that. So a, wo a woman who says, um, the only way I could sell, my, sell myself in the industry was I moved myself entirely into my head. So I felt like I did not have a body. Mm. Another woman named Sarah, who spent two years in prostitution, put it this way. I moved myself entirely into my head so someone could do whatever they wanted with my body mm. without me feeling it. Wow. So I wow. thought... These women are describing basically the hookup culture taken to its logical conclusion. Yes. In a sense, the hookup culture is training young women to do that, to yep. split their mind off from their body, to relate mm -hmm. just with their body. And in prostitution, we see its, its ultimate, you know, its ultimate um, outcome. One former sex worker said, I felt like every." Oh, by the way, and the, the, the purpose of this quote is to show you it doesn't work. <laughs> you may try to separate your body from your mind, but she said, uh, speaking about the years that she was in prostitution, said, I felt like every time I let a man penetrate me, a part of me disappeared. No matter how much I turn off my body, my soul is still being used up. Wow. So, you know, the, the coping mechanism of trying to say, well, I'll split off my mind and, and just, you know, my body's not part of me. My body's not part of my authentic self. The woman who wrote this um, says this split is deeply dehumanizing. It sets up a dividing line that is incredibly damaging for a person because it breaks down her essential wholeness. Yes. Wow. You know, I wish I'd had this. When I wrote my book, Love Thy Body, yeah. this is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. In, wow. in the, the what book is that? So it's it's uh, translated from Finnish. Okay. <laughs> it's by a Finnish author. So the title is a little awkward. It's called Being and Being Bought. Ooh, okay. Being Ooh. and Being Bought. And so it's a, uh, it's a great, it, it is a great example of how... Um, yeah. You know, taken to its logical conclusion, the hookup culture is, and pornography are all training women in the same split yeah. mindset. True. It's so true because yeah. that's what pornography does. Yeah. In you psychology, know? we call it depersonalization. Mm -hmm. And we actually see that manifest in various disorders. Um, that's why people have manic episodes and, you know, when they're coping with PTSD, often they'll do the depersonalization thing in order to not feel all the way. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that can, that can manifest in schizophrenic episodes. I mean, it's pretty intense. Um, but at the core, like you said, it doesn't work, um, because your soul is still being eaten up. It's being used up. Yeah, exactly. And, and even though, even the science supports it like you, you mentioned pornography, even the science shows that we're a unified beings. Mm -hmm. you know, right. the, the, the essential wholeness uh, that the book on prostitution talks about, the essential wholeness. After all, the, the only reason pornography 
is so addictive mm-hmm. is that it does trigger chemical reactions, especially um, uh, oxytocin, you know, the, the bonding hormones, dopamine, yep. which is the pleasure hormone. Mm-hmm. And what, what that means is what we do with our bodies does affect who we are as whole beings. Mm-hmm. And so science really supports the Christian view that you can't separate your body yeah. and, and what you do with your body from who you are as a whole person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what we do with our body does have consequences and mm-hmm. God designed it that way. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I think science is giving us the, the meaning. When Paul says things like, "When you unite yourself with a prostitute, don't you realize, you know, the, the whole being is being united?" Exactly. Um, yeah. Paul had it figured out. Maybe Paul had something there. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But, but down to the biochemical level, we are affected. Yes, and, and you yes. know, Paul didn't have modern science, but modern science is backing him up. Totally. So good. 100%. I love it when, when that happens with the Bible yeah. <laughs> and science. Yes. So in the book, you talk about pornography. You talk about how it, it kind of what you just addressed, it, it tears apart what's meant to be integrated and then treats the body as an object or an instrument for one's own pleasure. Um, can you talk a little bit about the porn epidemic and how it's really training our young people to engage in depersonalized sex? Yeah, I do like your word depersonalized because that applies to pornography perhaps more than anything else. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's pretty much the extreme of um, depersonalizing the other person. I mean, you are yeah. not when you're watching pornography, you are not at all interested in who this person is, what she's thinking, what she's feeling. And so I, I agree with you. You are actually training yourself to depersonalize another the, the, the other person and and the irony about that is that impersonal sex is rarely even satisfying mm-hmm. because so yeah. Yeah. even to the person who's seeking it out the pleasure of sexual activity is not just physical when we reach out for another person we're not driven just by sheer sexual and physical pleasure we are hoping for at least some level of personal connection you know, that that's how God made sex. It's it's to drive people together. Right. right. There was a um, professor at Harvard University that I quote in Love Thy Body, who says, "Young people are trying to persuade themselves that they can disconnect sexual intimacy from personal intimacy." Mm-hmm. And he says his his words were, "They're fooling themselves." <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. You, you can't really divorce the two. You yes. can't help functioning as a as a unified body soul integrated whole. Yeah. Yes. Know, no matter what you you know, no matter what your secular philosophy is, it doesn't work in person. Right. I I've even got a quote. This was um, a kind of a surprise. With the internet, you can uh, look up magazines and publications you would never read in in person. <laughs> right. <laughs> True. Right. So I, I found a quote from Glamour magazine. Uh-huh. And it was fascinating because you would you might expect glamour to pretty much uh, endorse any form. Yes. Of Secularism. Sex. Yeah. Yeah. Any form of sex too. Yeah. Um, and this article is warning young women that casual sex doesn't always work. That you often do find yourself getting wow. emotionally involved. And she, the, the author of the article, uh, 
tied it to our hormones that when we have sex, it does release hormones. Oxytocin is called the bonding hormone. Bonding hormone. Yes. Or the attachment hormone sometimes. Um, And and she said, here's how she put it. She said, you might find biology trumping your intentions. (laughs) That's good. But that is great. So good. Yeah. Biology is trumping your intentions. You may be intending to have a, no strings attached, you know, in a sexual encounter, but those intentions are being trumped by your biology. So I thought, oh, yeah. what a wonderful example of yes. where you cannot separate your body from the person, right? No matter how hard you try. I've heard you you say um, you said that there are two the two most common prescriptions on college campuses are birth control and then depression medication. <laughs> yes, that was a quote from a philosophy professor. And, and I thought that the connection, yes. it, um, mm-hmm. the connection speaks volumes for itself. <laughs> when, you know, the the, the um, two most common prescriptions are for birth control pills so that they can have <laughs> You know, no strings attached. Yes, to deal with the consequences. And then antidepressants because it leaves them so depressed. So kind of flipping now this maybe on its head, um, sometimes I think in in our Christian culture, there's a negative view on the body. Mm -hmm. And and even on sex because it's very body-oriented. Sex is a very body thing. So where are the roots of this idea from, yeah. I mean, if this isn't biblical at, at its core, then then where does this come from? Where does this idea originate? Yeah, especially in the church. We'll be right back to the interview, but first we want to share something that we are really excited about. So, you know, we all have those times where we don't feel super connected to our spouse and we really don't know what conversations to have to get us to that connected place. And then on top of that, we're so busy that we don't prioritize those conversations. And that's why we created the monthly live date night. And Monthly Live Date Night is every month on a Friday night for 90 minutes, 60 minutes. It, we focus on a topic that uh, you guys pick. And then 30 minutes, we do a Q&A and it's live where we're all together asking questions and giving answers on topics related to your marriage, your intimacy. And we share tools. Uh, we have handouts that we call homework because we want you to be there to listen and to soak in. But we really want you to take action in your marriage too. So come join us live for the next monthly live date night. Check the link in the show notes for dates and details. All right, back to the interview. Right. Actually, this I, I'll tell you, this is one of my, uh, a bit of a surprise when I wrote Love Thy Body and I started speaking on it at Christian churches, schools, colleges, people found it difficult <laughs> to have a, a message saying that you have, should have a high view of the body. Mm. And, and, and in the book, I actually do deal with that, but facing it personally was a little bit of a surprise still to find out how many, here's what one, one of my students put it this way. Growing up in the church, I was always taught body bad, spirit good. Oh. That's, uh, that's yes. a very nutshell. Mm-hmm expression of it. Basically, what we have to realize is that when we go back to the early church, the birth of the Christian church, mm-hmm. the church was facing secular worldviews that denigrated the body 
just as modern secularism does, though for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the early church was facing philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism mm. and Manichaeism. You remember, Augustine was a Manichae. Yeah. Okay. And all of them taught that this world, the physical, material world, is the realm of death, decay, and destruction. Yeah. And they all defined salvation in terms of escaping from the physical realm. Mm. Yeah, that was the goal of salvation, right? Exactly. To escape nature. To escape nature, <laughs> to escape your biology, yeah. <laughs> and to ascend to the spiritual realm. And in this context, well, it, uh, Plato even said uh, that he called the body the prison house of the soul. Mm-hmm. And so you wanted to escape from that prison. Yeah. And in this, oh, and Gnosticism even taught that. This world was um, was created by a low-level deity. You know, Gnosticism had mm-hmm. several levels of deities. Uh-huh. And it was not the supreme deity who was good and created this world. It was a lower-level deity who was evil because mm-hmm. no good god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. <laughs> Which so, is counter to the Christian message. Absolutely counter. Well, exactly, and that's why Christianity was so revolutionary when it first came, when, it was, when the early church was mm-hmm. born, uh, because it taught that, no, it was not a low-level deity who created this world. It was the supreme deity who was a good God, mm. and therefore, this world is intrinsically good. Yes. You know, and the fall does not totally negate that. The, the fall has marred and damaged it, but it's, it's as if you saw, had a beautiful masterpiece and you saw it damaged, you would still see the beauty mm. you know, through, through the, you know, you know may, yeah. maybe somebody took a, a marker and, and put, and slashed it with black markers. <laughs> you, you would still recognize the Mona Lisa. Exactly. <laughs> you would. Yes. You would. But that, that bring just brings out, I think, the beauty of God's coming to earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk <laughs> that, about that. that. <laughs> <laughs> So that's my next point. Yes. <laughs> I, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, that, that, that's good. It shows you're, you're, you're moving in the right direction. Uh, so my next point is that the incarnation uh, was actually the greatest scandal in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. That uh-huh. The same supreme deity had come down and taken on a physical body. Um, f- f- to the ancient world, that, that was even a greater scandal than creation. So the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. Mm-hmm. So and then what did, and when, when Jesus did um, escape the prison house of the soul, <laughs> so, so to speak, you know, when he was execute, executed on a Roman cross, what did, he, what did he do then? Came back in the form of a body. <laughs> Came back in a physical body. Yep. To the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. <laughs> <laughs> Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? Right. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, to the ancient Greeks, this, this was utter foolishness to the Greeks. Yes. Foolishness to the Greeks. And then at the end of time, what is God going to do? He's not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake the first time around. <laughs> He's going to restore it and renew it, create a new heavens and a new earth. And you and I will be there in our renewed physical bodies. So from the beginning, in the Apostles' Creed, 
the Christian church has affirmed the resurrection of the body. Yes. I was explaining this to one of my secular friends and they just about fell over. They said, what? <laughs> I never thought of Christianity. You're right. I mean, that is what the Apostles' Creed says. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just never made the connection that, order, yes. that from the beginning, the Christian church has taught the high value, digni- dignity, and significance of our body. And as Christians, we need to recover that. I have to tell you, there's no other religion or philosophy that yeah. has such a high view of nature and the human body. And we should be out there expressing it to people, just driven by that joy, you know, by the po- yes. you know, by a positive message. Uh, you know, we tend to think our, our message is supposed to be, you know, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. But t- talking about Francis Schaeffer again, Schaeffer said that gospel does not start with you're a sinner, you need to be saved. It starts with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> and therefore, you have intrinsic value and dignity made in God's image. And that comes first. Uh, when we preach, when, when our message starts with that, uh, well, actually, the fall doesn't make it doesn't even make sense if we don't start with that. Yeah. Because if we didn't have high value in the beginning, the fall, yeah, the fall would would not would not it would be trivial. You know, it's like you have a cheap exactly. you have a cheap plastic trinket and it gets broken, you just toss it away. Mm-hmm. But if a if a major um, if, if a major ma- masterpiece a masterpiece is damaged, that's a tragedy. And, it needs to be restored. And, restored. Yeah. and can be restored. Yeah. A, twink, a yes. trinket can't be made into a, manus, a, a masterpiece. That's right. But a masterpiece can be restored. So restoration is only possible if we start with creation and with our high dignity made in God's image. Mm. Uh, so beautiful. Ooh, man, I feel it right there. <laughs> so good. Preach it. Um, a question for you, kind of honing in on um, this, this whole, um, really it's the sacred secular divide, but, um, this divide between the self and the body and how it relates to marriage. Um, we have found in counseling that, um, this narrative makes its way into marriage. People who engage in hookup culture, especially they're often labeled as needy or clingy and dependent. Um, if they wanted anything more than sex in a relationship. And so they get into marriage and, you know, they, they struggle with that narrative still. How would you guide a married woman or man for that matter, struggling with those labels in their marriage? Yeah. You, you sent that question ahead of time. And you also sent a question of uh, what books would I recommend? And I, yes. I'd like to answer that question partly um, through, <laughs> through this little pile of books that I collected. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we are ready for it. I love that. <laughs> I would start with, um, I think you're right. It is usually women who are labeled as needy or clingy or wanting too much from the relationship. And I would start with using a personality test like the Myers-Briggs. I'll bet you guys use that. Do you? (laughs) Yeah, we do. Yeah. I like it. I think it's really helpful. And I use it with all my students. Nobody gets out of my classroom (laughs) without finding out out what their type is. What's your type? Uh, my type is INFP. Nice. Ah. <laughs> I can see yeah. that for sure. Um, 
But women are more likely to be F. You know, F is the sensitive, emotional, relational. And uh, according to David Kiersey, David Kiersey wrote what I think is the best book on the subject. Yes. Please understand me with the Roman numeral two, meaning second yes. edition. Kiersey mm -hmm. is K-E-I-R-S-E-Y. Yes. And it's, it's a very dense book. It's, it's more of a, um, a reference book. You don't just read straight through it. So it's very, <laughs> so it, it's very good. And it is helpful for women to know that uh, about 65% of women test out as F, mm -hmm. uh, which is the emotional, sensitive, relational. So it is more common for women um, to want more from a relationship. And to some degree, reading about your Myers-Briggs type can help affirm you in that. That's that. It's that. That's not bad. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not needy and clingy. It's good right. to want a more intimate relationship. It's Amen. Not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's it helped me a lot because if you're very F, if you're very sensitive, um, yeah, you've often been stepped on and t taken advantage of and used and exploited. Most guests, when I say that, start nodding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's not only a matter of saying, okay, this is who I am, that's nice. It's, Myers-Briggs is sometimes treated as kind of a parlor game. You know, what's your type? What's your type? I, I yeah. treat it as a serious tool yeah. <laughs> for recovering your, who God has made you and what your gifts are and realizing that even if society has not always affirmed you in those gifts, and most very sensitive people I know have not been affirmed. Um, mm -hmm. And it helped me to recover that. These are good gifts. Yeah. If a woman has been attacked and criticized for being needy and clingy, for example, it may take some time for her to say, no, God made me this way. He gave me these gifts, and he has a purpose for it. And I, mm -hmm. should, so I, should, I should be affirming myself. I should be affirming these gifts as good gifts from God. It's awesome. Yes. So I have found it helpful that way. Second, the second, um, his, his, my, my second book on my list. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys know John Gottman. Yes. We are Gottman fans. Gottman fans. Yes. yes. Uh, the seven <laughs> principles for making marriage work. Uh, nice. G-O-T-T-M-A-N. What's unique about John Gottman is he has uh, done the most empirical research on couples. Uh, he takes them into this little, um, lab that is set up like a uh, bed and breakfast <laughs> and he, he wires them up, wires them up to test their uh, heart, heart rate, their blood pressure, their, uh, their breathing rate. Uh, he, they, he tests their urine for stress hormones. He <laughs> even tests their, uh, their skin for sweating. Yep. And he has cameras on them so that he can slow down the camera and catch every micro expression and code it mm -hmm. he has also has coding for all your everything you say so you know yes. you may this comment was contemptuous this comment was compassionate you know so mm -hmm. other than yeah. that it's just like a normal bed and breakfast other than everything else <laughs> yeah I the love that. lab it's it's fascinating we actually had a Sorry. a few um a few months back we had uh the gottman uh, directors, the research directors at the Gottman Institute had them on the oh. podcast and they shared all about the Love Lab. And yeah, it's an excellent book. We'll be linking each of these in the show notes for sure. Now, here's what 
is relevant to your question, though. Yeah. The most surprising thing he found was that 65% of men do not listen to their wives. 65% of men um, shut them down, interrupt them, cut them off, silence their voice, do not share decision-making. And he said when they do that, they're 81% more likely to divorce or to end up in a very unhappy marriage. Mm-hmm. There's the, you can tell the empirical research, you know, he, he, he can refine it down to 81%. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But he... This was surprising, and I haven't heard a lot of people pick up on it, but if you read uh, some of his other books, he, he reiterates it. So, he, um, yeah. for example, uh, he says many men, many men in trouble marriages uh, blame their wives. And he said, uh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> no, this is on you, men. Mm. It is men who are 60. He said, of course, women should respect their husbands, but in my research, I found that women do. Even in troubled marriages, he said, most women are still reaching out to their husbands and trying to restore the relationship. Wow. He said it is, he said it is men who are not responding and are shutting their, women, their wives down. And then he actually has, I don't know if you've seen this one, I think it's his most recent book. It's, it's actually Addressing Men. Okay. The book Addressed to Men, and it basically says, men, this is on you. <laughs> <laughs> Whether your marriage succeeds or not is mostly a matter of what the husband does. Wow. And I haven't read that. Wow. And again, it's based on his research. He says, you know, mm-hmm. women are you know, my in my research, the the wives are reaching out. It's the husbands who are shutting them down 65% mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. So Gottman, yeah. um yes, that's, that's a good one. So that's important. You know, again, back to your question about what about women who feel like who feel like they're criticized for being, you know, too dependent or too clingy. Well, yeah, women are still reaching out. It's it's, and that's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a good thing. And it, and as yes. Gottman says, it's the men who are not trying to re- repair the relationship and who are shutting out their their wives, shutting down their voices. Okay. Mm. Wow. No, that's a good one. You are, you no doubt also know Terrence Real. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've read yeah. that book too. Yes, Terry Real, um, the new rules of marriage. And what was surprising yes. to me about Terry's uh, Terry Real's approach is that he also totally independently, as far as I can tell, uh, through his own counseling, he wrote the first book on male depression. Yes. yes. And that's yes, sort did. of what he's known for, because he really understands men. Mm-hmm. And his, his specialty is uh, counseling uh, marriages that are on the verge of divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of his beat, as he put it. Yeah, yeah. And he, too, says 65% of the time, it's the man. It's the man who's not willing to, to, to be relational, to uh, respect his wife, to listen to her concerns, to share decision-making with her. As far as I know, he independently came up with this from his own counseling practice. Wow. That, uh, and you know what he says? He says uh, in, in, in uh, training, for, you know, training for couples therapists, it's like a cardinal rule that you do not take sides. 
Yeah. Right. Between the husband and the wife. He says, nope, I don't do that. I take, (laughs) I take sides. I break that rule. I take sides. I go with whoever's not willing to uh, really listen to the other, uh, the other person who's not willing to, to repair the relationship. And again, 65% of the time, that's the man. So he says, I take the woman's side most of the time. Once in a while, it's the man. Uh, you know, it's, it's the sure. wife who's, 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 um, yeah. who's not really uh, participating. Yeah. Yeah. We have found, yeah. yeah, both. Yeah. I've, I've definitely found both, but like I do, I hear what he's saying because yes. I think that sometimes we take some of our clues from society. Like I need to be this, you know, patriarchal, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the boss sort of thing. And, yeah. And therefore, I can't take influence from my wife. I see that as a threat to my authority. Mm-hmm. And any step in that direction, you know, I'm giving ground. I'm giving ground. You know, so if if it's that outlook on things, he's not going to move. Yeah. You know? Yes. Well, uh, you've almost taken Terry Reel's words from his mouth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he basically says that too. He's really down on patriarchy. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's not he's not a Christian, so that he sees only the very secular negative. Yes. Interpretation yes. of patriarchy. Right. Um, but it's definitely not the Christian view of love your wives like Christ loved the church right. and gave himself for her. Yes. Yeah, it, it's a servanthood. Yeah. I, 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 I actually am writing a book right now on toxic masculinity. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ah, so you're, great. you're, that's why you have those books. <laughs> it, nice. is, it is why I have these books. And um, the, the, what, what, People have, you know, the books I'm reading often say, many people know Ephesians 5, women's wives submit to your husbands. Many Christians actually don't even know that a few verses down, it says men love love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Yeah. It's dual. You got to have both. I I was shocked that many Christians have never even read it and don't know that Paul has that wonderful balance and not even balance yes. in some ways he's given the harder job to the husband you know sure i, I yeah. agree that's a, a <laughs> huge responsibility to love your wife the way that christ loved the church i mean what a high calling right exactly exactly yeah. now let me just give you another book I, okay um so this is scott Holtzman, and you might not know this one it's called we don't the, no i haven't the secrets of happily married men Okay. So it sounds very fluffy, right? <laughs> it sounds like an Oprah type book, right? <laughs> but um, but the author is actually a psychiatrist at Brown University. Okay. And uh, so he actually knows what he's talking about. Nice. And what I like about this is, is that number one, he starts out putting the um, putting the fear of God into men, so to speak. <laughs> By saying, look, 70% of divorces are instituted by women. In fact, hmm. in fact, the book opens, the very first page is slam. <laughs> That's the sound of your wife walking out on you. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Unless you change. There's <laughs> mm, a good hook. <laughs> he says, look, and Terry Real says this a lot too. He says, look, it's women who are walking out on marriage these days. They are not happy with the way men are socialized. Like you were saying, Adam, men are socialized to think 
you know, my, my sense of self depends on being the boss. And if I share decision-making with my wife, I'm essentially giving up some of my authority. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, bo both, both Terry Real and uh, this Scott Holtzman are very big on men. You have to realize women are not happy in marriage. And if you don't change, you, you're going to be dragged through the divorce courts. And who wants yeah. that? I mean, yeah. nobody really wants to lose their family. And no, I just read uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, yeah. and he talks about the idea that um, men have to go into the the marriage with the idea that it's supposed to change us. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to stay the same. He said traditionally for a long, long time, um, it was viewed that the, the marriage civilized, you know, quote, civilized men. But lately the idea of compatibility if i could just find somebody that gets me and they're not looking to change me and they're not yeah. looking to change me then we're compatible we can live together and not have to do anything about becoming more like christ we could just kind of stay the way we are mm -hmm. but that's why we have to have both halves of that relationship to make us into the, the person that god wants us to be and i really like that balance of no marriage is supposed to change you that's the design. Good, good. I've read his book, but I, I think I'll go back and get that. Um, nice. That, I think that's a good point. And I think it's absolutely right that most people today are saying, uh, you know, I have to find somebody who's compatible with who I am so I don't have to change. Mm -hmm. I will. There's some very good statistics in there for you, for your, for your new book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I read it early on. You know, you have to sometimes, yeah. sometimes you have to go back and, and reread. Yes. But uh, I'll tell you what else is unusual about this book, The Secrets of Happily Married Men. Okay. Mm. He starts out by saying, I'm not going to tell you you have to change in your essential nature. So this is, you know, what makes uh, men want to read the book. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he says, you know, many articles and books on relationships essentially send the message to men, you should be more like women. <laughs> you should be more sensitive. You should be more emotional. You know, you should be um, uh, more willing to listen and so on. This is things that we stereotypically associate with women. He said, no, I'm going to show you how to use your masculine skills mm. to improve your marriage. And his, That's good. his main message is treat your marriage like your job. <laughs> <laughs> treat it the way you treat your job. Bring the same drive and determination and organizational skills to your marriage that you normally bring to your job. Mm. And he says, for, for example, make a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't, I'm not kidding you. He says, make a spreadsheet and, and every day check off. I said, I told my wife, I love her today. Check. You know, I did something affection today. Check. Mm. I did an extra household mm. chore. Check. I, I, wow. I played with my kids or read a book to them. Check. So he ends mm. up telling you to do all the same things. But he has you, he, he motivates, you, you know, that other marriage books tell you. But he yes. motivates them by saying, look, this is how you would do your thing with your job. You know, yeah. you, would you would have goals, you would have objectives, and you would check off those goals when you met them. Right, so right. Why not bring that to your marriage? Yep. And the point is intentionality, yeah, right? Yeah. It's not to be robotic, but to be intentional about it. And his yeah. second way of making it like your job, the first way was, you know, 
being organized, being intentional. The second way was mm -hmm. this. Um, look, in your job, you have clients or customers, and you know that you have to know them. You have to research them. You have to mm -hmm. find out what their concerns are, what they care about, what they like, what they don't like. Because if you don't, you're not going to have customers <laughs> or clients. That's right. <laughs> You're going to lose your job. <laughs> um, he said, he said, you know, you hear this a lot in business. We aim to please. He said, okay, research your wife. Treat her like a client or a customer. Research her. What does she like? What does she, what are her concerns? What does she dislike? What are her dreams? What does she want to do ultimately with her life? Um, so good. Which, you know, so he's, he's tapping into skills that they use on the job anyway yeah that's great and it's, i've never i've never thought of that like I, and i've never heard research your wife <laughs> together in a sense i know that's awesome i love it <laughs> uh, this has been so so helpful thank yes. you so much um for spending the time today and can i give you one more book know, before you yes oh, please, I, I, please I, I, yes so do you guys know okay uh there's a there's a book on um on um it's research of evangelical couples it's called soft patriarchy have you seen it? okay uh -uh, I, haven't. I haven't seen that one it's by uh, uh wilcox it's i think it's w bradford wilcox but wilcox he's he, he okay. teaches at uva university of virginia and he's considered like one of the top marriage researchers in the country he okay. is often uh, quoted in the New, York, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Okay, yeah. He gets he gets his articles published in the Washington Post, so he's widely respected in the secular world. Okay, and so he wrote a book on um, on evangelical couples, and he was responding oh. to criticism. Um, he he quotes people like Cokie Roberts, who's you know the newscaster. Who says evangelical couples are more likely to uh, to to commit abuse, to have abusive marriages, mm -hmm. because they believe in male headship? And he he quotes several uh, critics saying that, that that evangelical couples are more likely to be abusive to both their wives and their children. And then Brad Wilcox says the trouble with all these charges is that there's no empirical data supporting it. <laughs> Right. Okay. So he went out yeah. and did empirical studies. In fact, you know, it's not just a, a, a paper, it's a whole book. Uh, so okay. it's a very extensive study. And what he found is that uh, he compared evangelical couples to mainline, you know, theologically liberal couples and then to secular couples huh. not affiliated with the church at all. And he found that evangelical couples are much happier, the, the men are happier, their wives report being happier, and they, the, these husbands, these fathers spend more time with their children. They have more positive relationships with their children compared, wow. to, compared to mainline and secular fathers. And wow. they, um, you know, he's Catholic, so he, he didn't go into this trying to defend evangelicals necessarily. Right. <laughs> you know, right. He, he wasn't trying to find this outcome. Um, yeah. And then you ask, then you ask, well, wait a minute, why do we have this notion? We often hear that um, evangelical couples are more, uh, just as likely to um, to be abusive or to divorce as 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 the mainstream culture. Mm 
So he tackled that one too. What he did is he divided evangelicals into two groups, those who actively attend church and those who are good distinction and those who are nominal. That's good. Yep. And who maybe check the box, the you know, Baptist on a survey, mm-hmm. but who don't really attend church much, if at all. Uh, and the differences between these two groups was shocking. Actively engaged uh, evangelical men who actively attend church do test out the highest on all of these measures, wow. you know, in terms of being <sighs> the happiest, you know, the wife's happiest, most engaged and loving fathers, least likely to divorce, and actually the lowest rate of domestic violence of any other group in the country. Nominal Christians. Secular research. (laughs) It's great. And nominal evangelicals are not happy, and their wives report report high levels of dissatisfaction. They don't spend much time with the kids. And of all groups in America, they're the most likely to divorce, and they have the highest rates of domestic violence. Wow. So Brad Wilcox was um, quoted in a Christianity Today Today article saying, nominal evangelicals have the highest, uh, uh, let's see if I can remember the exact wording, nominal evangelical men are the most violent men of any other group in America. Wow. So that's important data. You guys would love that book. It's called Soft Patriarchs. I wrote okay. it down. Yeah. yeah. And we'll link it in the show notes yeah, we'll, for those we'll who link, are listening. We'll link all these books in our show notes for Do you think, Nancy, that that's because of um, the cognitive dissonance? Like just, uh, you know, that they're trying to live this st- lifestyle, but then you know, they're not measuring up to it? You know, Wilcox is just a numbers cruncher. And so he doesn't really speculate on why. Okay. Um, but I think you're right, because I've looked at in, in my earlier book, um, How Now Should We Live? I look at uh, things like alcoholism and drug abuse. Uh-huh. And the same thing held there. The people who had the hardest times, who, who were the unhappiest mm-hmm. and the most addicted were nominal Christian people. Wow. And I thought, I thought the same thing that you just suggested. It's probably because they mm-hmm. feel more guilty about it. Yes. Than yes. Other yeah. people do. Wow. So, so yeah. I have one more book for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so because there is some domestic violence, even in the best Christian families, and because it's very common, it, it's the highest, you know, people who have some connection to the church, nominal Christians, mm-hmm. uh, have the highest rates. It is something that Christians should be researching and f- getting better answers to. And this was the book I found the most helpful. It's called The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. By a Christian, okay. the emotionally destructive marriage, and it's by a Christian therapist named Leslie Vernick, V-E-R-N-I-C-K. Um, and Christian therapists uh, that I researched for for my you know my upcoming book um, are finally getting ahead of ahead of the game on this. For a long time, the church has not responded very well to issues of abuse in the Christian home. Mm. And it was very common. It was very common for the wife to be blamed. You know, she was just more submissive. Mm. If she would just love him more, if she would just more um, mm. uh, forgiving, if she would just bake, make his favorite foods, if she would lose weight and, and you know care about her appearance more, 
Mm -hmm. um, and the trouble is women have spent years and years and years trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and mm -hmm. now even popular level Christian therapists like Henry Cloud, you know, one, mm -hmm. one of the co-authors of the Boundaries books, he has another book called Necessary Endings. Mm -hmm. And it's on when you need to stop trying, <laughs> when you need to realize you're loving, you're forgiving, you keep trying, and there's some people who do not respond to that. Um, mm. uh, there's, I have, it's, it's good that we are finally getting, David C. Clark is another Christian psychotherapist who does this. They're beginning to say, the woman who keeps loving and forgiving and supporting an abusive husband is enabling. If, it, mm. if anger gets him what he wants, he'll keep being angry. Mm -hmm. right. if, you, if you keep giving him love and support and forgiveness, he'll think, well, what I'm doing is okay then. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Classic codependency. Yeah. And uh, exactly. But that has, that has been the advice to, to women or to men and women who are in abusive relationships. And the, uh, one, one woman who had, was suffered pretty severe abuse who I interviewed uh, for my book said the advice from her church was, if you keep loving and forgiving, he will blossom into the man you want him to be. And it's just not, that's not human nature. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you just, uh, if you're sweet and loving and kind, uh, he takes that as permission to continue. And so the, um, fortunately, books like this one by Leslie Vernick are starting to say, no, that doesn't work. We need the Matthew 18 approach. The Matthew 18 is loving, mm. loving confrontation, holding people accountable and applying consequences and so on. So, That's so good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so if you want to, I can give you more books on that too. Uh, <laughs> I, we know you're a book lover. I've, I've been researching them all right now for Oh, that's uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, though, for your expertise and bringing all these resources. Yes. Um, we, we need them. We need this sure. in this day and age and navigating the society that we're in. Yep. Um, we do need all the help we can get. Yeah, because we live in a fragmented society and it, you know, breeds the need for continual um, lift, redemptive yeah. lift, you know, so... Yeah. Thank you so much, Nancy. We like to close all of our podcasts by asking this question and uh, it's a fill in the blank question. So we we ask you to think about um, advice that you would want to give to young married couples in their first few years of marriage. And then you write a letter to them. Uh, Dear young married couple. Yeah, I thought um, I might give you a Something from Terry Real, okay. um, because I thought it was very um, realistic, <laughs> not, okay. not, not to make a pun on his name. But one of the things he says over and over again is, it's going to be harder than you think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I, I like what you said, Adam, earlier about we, we think we found somebody compatible. But in fact, often what we found is somebody whose baggage it's, it's, it correlates with our own baggage. <laughs> this is, by the way, speaking of books, this is from that book, Getting the Love You Want. Do you know this one? Yes, Harville Hendricks. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, so he's, he's pretty good on showing that um, whatever emotional baggage you bring from the past, 
really does drive you in your choice of a spouse. And, uh, and you should know that. You should know that and realize that on the one hand, this is, uh, in the past, this has been thought as a bad thing. Oh, you keep marrying, you know, somebody who, who's been in multiple relationships, you know, well, you, you keep getting in these abusive relationships, what's wrong with you? But Harho mm -hmm. Hendrick basically says, no, this is a good thing. Because this is you, your, your inner self is seeking healing. It's seeking mm -hmm. healing, so you, you do keep putting yourself in a similar position because this time you're going to solve it. <laughs> this time you're going to learn from it. Yeah. So I think that that's um, realizing that, that you're going to end up finding out that um, the baggage from your past, and everyone's got some. I mean, some people have very abusive pasts, and some people just have ordinary you know, parents who weren't always there for you. Uh, because sure. because they're human right. and they're sinful and fallen yeah. like the rest of us. <laughs> right. Uh, and so and Terry Real puts it this way. He says, "There's three stages to marriage. There's the in, you know the original infatuation and falling in love, and then he says there's going to be a time of disillusionment. And be ready for yes. that. The time of disillusionment. Mm -hmm. And he says." <laughs> um, you don't think some, you know, you failed or that your marriage is falling apart or, you know, this is normal. <laughs> yeah. You should expect this. If you go in expecting it, it will be easier. He calls it, <laughs> it's a little overstated, but he calls it normal marital hatred. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and he says, no. he says, uh, he uses that phrase in his you know, when he speaks publicly, he says, I've never had anyone come up to me and say, Terry, what do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> People just get they it. They all know. Yeah. And then he's, then as you come out of that, as you get healing, you know, as you change, like you said, Adam, as you allow the relationship to mm -hmm. change you, then you finally reach the real mature love. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think helping people realize that when when the uh, when the second stage hits, <laughs> <laughs> that that this is normal, and you have to grow more. You know, at least biblically speaking, we don't grow when things are going well. We grow when things are hard, when they're painful, yes. when they're tough. Yep. That's what challenges yep. us to go deeper spiritually and to find better answers. So, amen. Amen. Yeah. Thank you so oh, much. So this is so helpful and uh, very such a pleasure to to uh, interview somebody that I've read oh, yeah. yes. and and enjoyed <laughs> a lot. Aww. So thank you so Nancy much, Nancy Piercy, folks. If you want to get in contact with her material, you can go to nancypiercy.com or Amazon or, or, or yeah, any of her books. <laughs> uh, we're gonna link "Love Thy Body" here in the show notes as well as the other books that she recommended. And she has multiple books. You can find all of those and on. I would recommend The Soul of Science. Oh, yeah. If you're an academic, if you're an apologist, you're interested in that side of things, The Soul of Science. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a joy talking with you. All right, friends. We really hope that you got a ton out of today's conversation. And if you want help, if you want personal guidance with individual counseling or couples counseling, or even help with you as a couple reaching the goals you have, just reach out. Give us a call at 916-678-1797 or shoot us an email at hello at dearyoungmarriedcouple.com. No matter where you are in the world or in your marriage, we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward progress. 
We also post marriage advice regularly on our Instagram, which is at Dear Young Married Couple. And we'd love for you to join us in conversation there. All right, see you next week.